I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10 and verses 38 through 42. We're going to look at the last part of this chapter in these few short verses in a message entitled, At the Feet of Jesus. One thing we know is that Jesus loved the family that we find in our scripture passage before us today. Martha and Mary were sisters of Lazarus, uh, the man that Jesus raised from the dead. Uh, Martha seems to be the older of the sisters. Uh, She's the one who went out to meet Jesus after her brother Lazarus died. And when Jesus finally arrived and she learned that Jesus was on the approach uh, to Bethany, Uh, they lived in the area called Bethany, which is located about two miles over the hillside from Jerusalem. Uh, They had heard the words of the kingdom from Jesus. They had heard the words of life, and they believed, and they loved Jesus with devotion. We pick up reading here in verse 38. It says, Now it happened as they went, he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered, verse 41, and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. When Martha saw Jesus approaching, she probably thought to herself, uh, he needs a good meal, a good dinner. Uh, Jesus was no doubt weary from his travels and from his ministry, and she was going to exercise the gift of hospitality. Think about all of the preparations that she would have made for Jesus and the others to be hosted in her home. She made ready for the guest. She prepared uh, to get the food and the supplies that she didn't already have on hand, and she prepared the table. If uh, the disciples were eating with him uh, alongside of him with maybe some of the women who were supporting his ministry also, this would have been a large dinner party. It would have been quite the undertaking. And while Martha was actively engaged in doing all of these things, Mary, her sister, was at the feet of Jesus. Mary left her sister to prepare the meal alone, and Jesus permitting Mary to sit at his feet at all was progressive in a sense. Uh, Judaism would have permitted a woman to be taught from the Torah, but no rabbi would have allowed a woman to sit at his feet and to be taught. But here was Mary. She's wanting to learn from and to be in the presence of the Lord And she was attentive to the presence of God in their midst. As Mary was at the feet of Jesus, her sister got a bit frustrated. The idea is that she was distracted by all of the preparations, meaning that she was pulled away from uh, everything that was going on with what she was trying to accomplish. And I think it's implied that Martha herself would have also liked to have been at the feet of Jesus but was weighed down by her responsibilities. And she thought Mary was selfish and was a little bit upset at Jesus for letting it go this far. 
So she comes to the Lord and she says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? And then she does what's never advisable. She gives a command to Jesus and says, tell her to help me. Now, I think her sense of priority in that moment uh, was off base. Certainly, we should take our responsibility seriously. Uh, It's only by the grace of God that we can serve him. But Martha's responsibilities, and particularly her priority, distracted her from time at the feet of Jesus. So notice how Jesus replies back to her. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen the good part, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, Martha has been called practical, impulsive, even short-tempered due to the fact that she gave a rebuke to the Lord himself. But I think Martha was a remarkable woman with good intentions. Some of us tend to be more like Martha than we are Mary. And I think the meaning of the exchange, or at least the specifics of it, uh, are a little bit of a puzzle for us because somebody does have to do the work. But it is important to note that Jesus admonished her not for the work that she was doing. Jesus admonished her for being worried and troubled about many things. He didn't admonish her for the action she was undertaking, but instead that she was worried and anxious about many other things, and as a result of that was distracted from the main thing. So the point is not to present a contrast between doing and being, but rather to make time at the feet of Jesus the first priority in our lives. Time at the feet of Jesus should result in a life of good works. It ought to just be evidenced by the fact that we've been spending time with him. This is a short and simple event that's not given a lot of commentary. I think we should take it at face value and learn from it. And what I want to do is draw just a bit further from the life and the teachings of Jesus in the Gospels and help us identify and put into practice what characterizes time spent at the feet of Jesus. Well, first of all, time at the feet of Jesus is characterized by a life of abiding, by a life of abiding. Now, Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to his word, reflects an abiding fellowship with Jesus. She wanted to be where he was. She wanted to hear what he had to say. She wanted to commune in that moment with the Lord. Jesus said in John 15 and verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. The abiding life means that we remain in Jesus. It means that we continue in Jesus, that we live for Jesus. To abide is an active verb, and it's something that we do because of who we are. So the illustration here is of the parallel relationship between the vine and the branch. God the Father is the vineyard keeper. Jesus is the vine. We are the branches, and we take both our lives and our sustenance from the vine as the branches. Because we are connected to him and because we are communing with him, we have what we need to live the spiritual life 
in his presence. And I think there's far more to it than just a simple continued uh, intellectual belief alone. Uh, But instead, it comes from the fact that we are in Christ, that we are rooted in Christ. Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So that language is used in the New Testament, that if you've repented of your sins and you've believed in Jesus, then you are in Christ, that God the Father has accepted you based on what God the Son has done on your behalf. That the very righteousness of Jesus is imputed to your life so that when God sees you, he sees you through the holy white righteousness, the purity and the holiness of Jesus. And we have standing because of who we are in him. You see, our faith is more than just believing the right things. It is who we are. And when we believe the right things, we are who we are in Christ. And then we do the right things as we honor the Lord because we've been united with Jesus and because we're abiding in him. I love this quote by J.C. Ryle from many, many years ago. He said, to abide in Christ means to keep up a habit of constant close communion with him, to be always leaning on him, resting on him, pouring out our hearts to him, and using him as our fountain of life and strength, as our chief companion and best friend. To have his words abiding in us is to keep his sayings and precepts continually before our memories and our minds and to make them the guide of our actions and the rule of our daily conduct and behavior. God calls you to a close relationship with him. He invites you into a communing fellowship of abiding with him. And that union that you have with Jesus through repentance and faith brings you to a place of communion with Jesus. And I think Mary is an excellent example of what an abiding life at the feet of Jesus looks like. Then time at the feet of Jesus is characterized by a life in the word, a life in the word. Mary, Jesus said, chose the good portion at the feet of Jesus. What was she doing? She was listening to his word. She would have the word that she heard long after the meal was over. And the Bible says that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So what we need is a word that is going to fill our lives so that we can build our lives on the right basis and be strengthened and guided in the truth. And she would have had that word long after this dinner party was over, and she's chosen the best portion in the presence of Jesus. John 17, or John 15 and verse 7, the first part of the verse, says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. So what Jesus does when he speaks of the abiding life in John 15 and verse 5 is he continues it on and he talks about some of the things that will be present when we're abiding in him. And one of those things that will be present is the word of God abiding in our lives. Now I say to you that the word of God is our foundation. It was Jesus who said, everyone who hears his words and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. Matthew chapter 7. 
You remember Jesus gave the contrast between the man who built his house on the rock and the one who built his house on the sand? And then when the storm came, the man who built his house on the rock, that house stood. But the one who built his house on the sand, that one was washed away. Well, what he's saying to us is make sure that you're building on the right foundation, that the Word of God is the foundation for your life. I read a, an illustration about a city in Russia called uh, Berezniki, and it's in the Ural Mountains of Russia. And parts of this city are literally sinking into the earth. It's a city of about 150,000 people, uh, but evidently it was built over a potash mine, of all things. Evidently, that was not uncommon during the Soviet times. And what they tried to do when they dug out these cavernous uh, craters to dig out this potash was when they tried to put some cover back over, what they did was they built pillars to support these voids. But get this, they used salt to build the pillars in order to hold the ground up. Well, water began to seep in. It's right on the banks of a river. And when the water began to seep in, it began to wash away those pillars. And when the pillars were washed away, uh, there were these big sinkholes. And there's this one sinkhole that they referred to as the grandfather sinkhole, 1,300 feet across and 650 feet deep. In recent decades, they've debated about whether or not they ought to just move the entire city because of the problems that have ensued and move it over to some bedrock that's solid on the opposite side of the river. Now, I want to draw this parallel here because sin has the function of being like water that seeped into that mine. Sin attacks the very foundation. And if you build your life on the foundation of the Word of God, you can avoid a lot of dangerous potholes. You can avoid a lot of problems. If you build your house on the bedrock, then when the storm comes, notice I didn't say if the storm comes, but when the storm comes, it doesn't matter what that storm is, your life is going to be able to stand because you've built it on the right foundation. But not only is the Word of God the foundation of our lives, but the Word of God is life-giving to us. It gives us life spiritually. Now, I believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Word of God. What I mean by that is verbal, meaning every word. Plenary, meaning all parts of the Bible as divinely inspired and authoritative. So the way that we got our Bible is that the Holy Spirit breathed out the Word of God to men who spoke from God as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible says. And all Scripture is breathed out by God. So it's God's Word. God never acts in a way that is contrary to His character. God cannot lie as though He were a man. God always tells the truth. And God's Word is to be the foundation that we build our lives on. Listen to the way the psalmist put it in Psalm 119 and verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Verse 26. I have declared my ways and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. You see, the psalmist cried out to God in his struggle. And the reference to the dust 
is a reminder of the brokenness and the limitations of the human experience. The word appeared as part of God's pronouncement on judgment of the human race after the fall. He said in Genesis 3 and verse 19, "...to you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." But I've got good news for you today. Brokenness is not the end of the story. And the reason brokenness is not the end of the story is because God delights in what he has created. And God has made you in his image. And he cares for you. And it's through what he's done for you in his son Jesus that he brings us to that place of redemption and restoration. And God takes us in our brokenness and he makes all things new in Christ. The psalmist said, revive me. He's asking the Lord to give him life. And here's what he's saying. God, I'm asking you to revive me and to give me life. How? According to your word. The word of God is a life-giving breath. Jesus said in John chapter 6 and verse 63, it, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. He said, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. The words of Jesus are life-giving because they are spirit and they are life. So Jesus continually called people to a heart reality, focusing not on worldly things, but focusing on spiritual things. And Jesus rebuked those who followed him with the wrong motivations. And as Peter said to the Lord, Lord, To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You have the answers and the life that we need. I believe Mary is an example of a life in the word, having chosen the good portion. Further, time at the feet of Jesus is characterized by a life of prayer. A life of prayer. I uh, quoted just a moment ago the first part of John 15 and verse 7. Now for the second part. Jesus said, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. What's he talking about? He's talking about prayer. Time at the feet of Jesus that is exercised in prayer calls us to a still and to an unhurried focus. In a life of prayer, what we learn to do is we learn to rest in the grace of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I think we have a tendency Uh, to strive in our own works. We have a tendency to be caught up in worried minds. We tend to accomplish far less than what we could actually accomplish if we were resting in the grace of God. And we work and we try to come up with our own answers to our problems. All the while, God is working in us. He is working through us. And he is working for us. He is working in us to transform us. He is working through us to carry out his will, and he is working for us and that he's going ahead of us as well as serving as our rear guard. Hebrews 4 and verse 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. You see, in a life of prayer, we learn to know God. And prayer leads us to a place where we recognize that our faith is an experiential faith. It's not just something that we believe here, but it's something that we hold down deep in our souls. 
that we want to know this God who has made us and redeemed us better. I love the way Jesus defines eternal life in John 17 and verse 3. He said, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. He's speaking to God the Father. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So I'd say to you that your faith comes down to what it means to know God. We have to know some things about God in order to know God, but if we stop at what we know about God, rather than truly knowing God and growing in our relationship and fellowship with Him, we've stopped short of what the Christian life is because God is calling you to Himself so that you might know Him and so that you might experience this eternal life. So yes, eternal life is a gift from God. It is both present and perpetual. It has both a quality and a quantity. And from Genesis to Revelation, we read of a God who loves people and desires to have a relationship with them. David wanted to know God. He was a man who had his own problems and certainly fell far short, but yet he wanted to know God. Psalm 63 says, oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and a thirsty land where there is no water. At times, we rush into the presence of God with request for what we want, when instead we should be coming into the presence of God with a need to know Him and to grow in our relationship with Him. Yes, He wants us to bring our requests to Him, but as we abide in Him, what's going to happen is your will is going to be aligned with His will. In fact, it is in prayer, through the Word, that we learn to align our will with God's will. Joshua aligned his will with God's will, and the sun stood still. David aligned his will with God's will, and the giant was defeated. Elijah aligned his will with God's will, and the fire came down on Mount Carmel. Daniel aligned his will with God's will, and the mouths of lions were closed. You see, when we delight ourselves in the Lord, he'll give us the desires of our heart. But Psalm 37 and verse 4 is not about manipulating God. It's saying, God, I want to draw so close to you that your will becomes my will, so that I'm praying consistently with what your will is. As I draw closer to you in a life of prayer, I learn what that will is all about. And I think that's the only way that we're going to see fruit in our lives is if we align our will with God's will. Now, there are some obstacles to overcome if you want to spend time at the feet of Jesus. And I want to give you these obstacles really as points of, of application, points of consideration. These are by no means exhaustive, but they are representative. First, uh, pride is an obstacle for us uh, from coming and spending time at the feet of Jesus. What do I mean by that? We tend to be self-sufficient, and we think we don't need to spend time at the feet of Jesus. So even people in church, sometimes that they, they think that they have checked the spiritual box by participating once a week and then not giving Jesus much thought for the rest of the week. So I think one of the telltale signs, really one of the uh, measures that you can use in your life to see whether or not you're spending time at the feet of Jesus is, is he front and center in your life throughout the week, 
not just when we're here together? Are, are you walking with him? And I'd say to you, beware of a faith of convenience, which may cause you to avoid a faith of commitment. Let me say that again. Beware of a faith of convenience, which may cause you to avoid a faith of commitment. Pride is an obstacle. And then second, busyness is an obstacle. Busyness is an obstacle and not a goal. Martha was busy working and preparing. Jesus pointed out the particular way that she was doing those things in the moment. We all have responsibilities, and God expects us to be faithful in keeping them. But let me just let you in on a little secret. You're not going to get a medal someday for how busy you've been for the Lord. You're not. I've got one acquaintance in ministry who lives elsewhere, and every single time that I talk to him, he leads in with how busy he is. He tells me about his calendar and his schedule and everything he's got going on, and and continues to talk about that. And I'm thinking, brother, if you're that busy, you got your priorities out of order. You see, the reason that I know that is because I've been him before. In fact, one of the most concerning things that I've ever had people in church say to me is, I'd like to talk to you, but I know you're busy. Now, I appreciate the sentiment. Because what you're saying to me is, listen, I know you got a lot of things going on, and I want to fit in where I can. But if we are living life at such a pace, whether we're the pastor or we're serving in some other capacity in the church, if we're living life at such a pace that we don't have time to pause for a moment and talk to one another and encourage one another, we're doing it all wrong. We, we've got it all out of order. That, that's not how it's supposed to be. So yes, there are times when our responsibilities will stack up on us and it'll be more hectic than it is at other times. And there's times we just got to get stuff done and it's hammered down on the schedule. I get all that. I live that life. But it's really the attitude of how you live your life, not just the things that you're doing. Are you unhurried in the presence of the Lord so that you can be unhurried in your ministry for the Lord. And then the last obstacle I want to suggest is the obstacle of worry. Worry is an obstacle. Jesus told Martha she was anxious and troubled about many things. Maybe that sounds familiar. We get anxious and troubled about many things. But how many of those things that we get anxious and troubled about in this moment really matter in the long run? And what can you truly do about the things that you're getting anxious and worried about in the moment? What you could do best is give it to God. Did you know that worry grows in the soil of distrust? That's where it grows. But worry diminishes in the soil of faith. Worry grows in the soil of distrust. Worry diminishes in the soil of faith. Corey Tinboom said, Worry does not empty tomorrow of its sorrow. It empties today of its strength. And I believe that to be so true. Friend, if you've got a problem today, ultimately it's God's problem. If you've got a burden that you're carrying around, it's ultimately God's burden. If you've got a hurt, 
and something that's weighing heavily on you, it's ultimately God's hurt because he cares for you and what he wants you to do and not only wants you to do, but tells you to do is to cast all of your cares on him because he cares for you. If you come into the presence of the Lord with that kind of an attitude, he's going to lift the burden, might not solve the problem immediately. This is not about denying the problem. There are things that are just not good in life. That they're, they're unpleasant, they're painful, they bring us to a sense of loss in many time, at many uh, junctures, and yet God is faithful in our lives. So let me ask you as we close, are you living life at the feet of Jesus? If you're not where you want to be, today could be a fresh start. This, this message is to encourage you and to challenge you, not discourage you. Maybe you've drifted away from the Word, and you've drifted away from prayer, and you've drifted away from that spirit of abiding, and you're caught up in all the things of life. Maybe today the invitation for you is that God is saying to you, come in here a little closer. Lean in just a little bit closer, because He wants to do something in your soul. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. I don't know what the needs are, but God does. He knows what you're struggling with and what's weighing heavily on you, and He cares. Maybe you're at a place where you've never come to repentance and faith and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. As you hear this call, it's the call of Jesus to come and follow Him. Will you trust Him? Christian, maybe you've been living the abiding life and you know the joy that I'm talking about. But you want to continue to grow and not get stale and uh, not get stuck in your spiritual life. Would you ask the Lord in this moment just to continue the renewal and reviving process in your soul that you can walk closely with Him? But I know enough to know, even in a crowd this size today and maybe among those who are listening that there's some folks that are discouraged because they're not living life at the feet of Jesus. You might be going through the motions. You might be saying the right things. You might be checking the boxes. But you know there's not real communion there. Would you come in a little closer to the Lord and say, God, help me for my soul to be stirred to a greater communion with you. Father God, thank you that we can know you for the gift of eternal life. I pray that in our church and our ministries and in our homes, that we would be so captured by our love for you and our desire to be spirit-filled and word-directed and Jesus-exalting that nothing would keep us from it and that you would be honored in the midst of of our lives as we seek to know you better. And I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.